we will do everything we can to protect you going forward. And please know that history is on your side. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast and 106.7 FM KSO in Cottage Grove, out in Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI in Lancaster, in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM Columbus and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And of course, coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the Progressive Voices channel, on the Stitcher app, the TuneIn app, on iTunes, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation. Radio or not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville, Detour Talk in East Tennessee. And yes, blanketing planet Earth five days a week on Radio Sputnik. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us for another thrilling, action-packed adventure that we call the Bradcast. Coming up momentarily, North Carolina State Rep Chris Scro will join us to discuss uh, this this amazing back and forth that has happened over the past few days and then on into today uh, over this HB2, Hate Bill 2, as it's referred to out there uh, by some in North Carolina where the Republicans just are bound and determined to uh, to keep this law in place no matter what the cost, no matter what the political cost, no matter what the financial cost, no matter what the karmic cost of hating their own residents. Uh, anyway, that is coming up momentarily. Uh, just off after we got off the air on Friday, I received an email uh, from a listener up at our uh, AM 950 KTNF uh, affiliate up in Minnesota, Minneapolis, St. Paul. Uh, listener DX Fool wrote in to uh, into me at um, my email address, bradcast at bradblog.com, uh, to say, Meanwhile, in other climate change news, and pointed me to an article over at the Twin Cities Pioneer Press. A very short article, but kind of an amazing one. It's the, it says, uh, Two harbors, both alike in dignity, but not today in Mercury. That was the scene in northern Minnesota on Friday when Two Harbors, Minnesota, hit 90 degrees, the warmest reading in the United States. Uh, Jeff Edmondson of KARE 11 up there in Minnesota said, How many times does this happen? Two Harbors, Minnesota, the hottest place in the USA. Meanwhile, they note, 
83 miles up the road in Grand Maris or Grand Marais. Apologies if I'm pronouncing that wrong. Things were a little bit different. Cody Matz from Fox 9 said uh, right now it was 90 degrees at Two Harbors, the warmest spot in the U.S. Meanwhile, at Grand Marais is just 45 degrees with wind off the lake, one of the coldest temperatures in the U.S. Uh, at the same time in the same state. That reading was uh, colder almost than anywhere in the continental U.S., says the uh, Pioneer Press, save for a few mountain regions out here in northern California, uh, according to uh, IntelliCast weather mapping. Two Harbors reading is a record setter. The uh, high of 90 degrees far outstrips the city's May 6 average of just 56 degrees. I don't point that out uh, because we do the weather here. I point that out. Uh, to ask Desi Doyen if we know this uh, uh, this warm front, warm front and cold front that was going through Minnesota at the same time. Is this part of the same system that has resulted in absolute devastation? Uh, just a few hundred miles, I guess, northwest of there in Alberta, Canada, where these uh, these fires, these amazing fires continue. Yes, this is part of the same weather system that has been parked over Alberta and giving them record high temperatures. Just want to emphasize in yeah. Minnesota, those were only those records were mm-hmm. only 83 miles apart. Just remember, only 83 miles <laughs> right. apart from the hottest to the coldest. These extremes of temperature are what scientists have been warning about will happen. More intense, more extremes with global warming. And that's kind of what's fueled the wildfire that has destroyed much of Fort McMurray, Alberta. And that is that, of course, is Desi Doyen, our producer, my co-host of the Green News Report. Uh, and these extremes that you're talking about, this fire up in Fort McMurray. Uh, I want to hit this just for a few minutes before we uh, get to North Carolina, because this is not getting the coverage that you would think it would deserve. I mean, frankly, had this been an American city uh, facing this kind of devastation and evacuation and evacuation, 80,000 citizens evacuated because of this fire over the weekend on Saturday, we finally began to see some of the uh, photographs of that devastation that looked uh, to me like uh, Germany, Berlin after uh, World War II. I, I mean, just utter devastation. It looks like it has been block. bombed. It, yes, it, it does. Cars flipped over, and and they they are, are uh, they're surmising, surmising that that's because cars exploded and buildings exploded oh, and gas stations God. exploded. You know, throwing these cars with uh, everywhere. Vir- uh, AP says uh, virtually whole neighborhoods burned to the ground. Canadian officials say this was on Saturday. Okay, they said they expect to fight the massive wildfire that has destroyed large parts of Alberta's oil sands town for months for months there was fear on saturday that the growing wildfire could double in size and reach a major oil sands mine and even the neighboring province of saskatchewan uh the alberta government said the massive blaze in the province will cover more than uh well half a million acres by sunday and not and then continue to grow because of high temperatures dry conditions and high winds that is what has fueled this fire. Um, 
And uh, the Alberta's premier, Rachel Notley, says that this is the fire is in no way under control. That was on Saturday and then some good news on Sunday. Yes, on Sunday, the weather helped out a little bit. Uh, it has slowed down the growth of the fire. Uh, the weather is cooler now. That helps uh, prevent new fires from being sparked. Because remember, this wildfire had created its own weather, creating its own lightning sparks mm. and was setting new fires in and of itself in a feedback loop. Cooler temperatures and some rain has helped slow down the growth of the fire. And to put it into perspective, uh, someone online that I saw uh, likened it to say, imagine the size of New York City and Los Angeles. The fire is bigger than both of those wow. combined. Wow. Now, yeah, you mentioned the good news uh, that the uh, it, it grew more slowly on Sunday because of some colder weather and even some rain. So now it only, the fire only covers uh, 400,000 acres. Uh, but it is quite a bit smaller than had been uh, expected on Saturday. Um, and uh, they say that some 80 percent of the homes in the area are still standing. Their school is still standing. Their hospital there is still standing. I uh, can't even imagine what it must have been like to have to evacuate uh, all those patients from from the, uh, the hospitals there. Uh, it rained a little bit on Sunday. The uh, rural municipality of Wood Buffalo, which includes Fort McMurray, tweeted a picture of the rainfall and wrote that, quote, it was only for a few minutes, but the sight of rain has never been so good. Notley, the uh, premier up there, retweeted the picture and wrote, here's hoping for much more. They believe they may be uh, turning a, a, a corner. But again, we're not covering this just because it's an amazing fire, and it is an amazing fire, uh, but also because of the irony of the reason this fire has uh, occurred. The it's so intense and so huge and so difficult to fight. Right. Due to climate change, right there in the area where they now have the third largest uh, reserve of uh, fossil of oil on the planet in the tar sands region. This is that same sticky, gooey tar sands that they were hoping to send down through the uh, through the XL uh, the uh, Keystone XL pipeline. Uh, and many people who work in that town of Fort McMurray, whose lives have been devastated, they're there. They're up there because they work. Uh, in those oil sands mines uh, just a few miles to the north. Yeah, they did not uh, bring this upon themselves directly, but we've all participated in creating the conditions of global warming, which have created the conditions for these super intense wildfires. You know, they have the jobs that are available to them up there. But luckily, Rachel Notley, the premier, is trying to diversify Alberta's economy. But obviously, mm -hmm. this comes far too soon for her to be able to fix this uh, major problem that is going to affect all of us. You have to wonder, will this affect the thinking of those folks up there? Yes, they did not bring this on themselves. They got to take work where it comes. But you got to wonder if this will affect their thing. Mean, they got a lot of time to figure out what the hell is going on this uh, over the past few days, over the past weekend. Who knows at this point when they're going to get back to their houses. But, uh, you know, a lot of times when I hear from uh, climate change deniers and I hear from people pushing back on our coverage on the Green News Report here on the broadcast when it comes to uh, climate change, a lot of them come from Canada. A lot of them come from Alberta. A lot of them are uh, part of that tar sands industry up there. 
uh, you know, poo-pooing the idea of climate change, you got to wonder what effect this is going to have on those people who are working on the third, the world's third largest reserve of oil after Saudi Arabia and, and Venezuela, now up there in the tar sands. And just one more good point about the fact that the first responders and the Alberta government, they got all those people out. There have been no direct deaths yep. yet, as we know of so far, from this fire. Everyone was safely evacuated. There have been some other uh, external accidents that happened. There was two people got killed during evacuation on the roads, accident, right, right uh, in a car accident. But, but the fact that yeah. their taxes and their government came in and saved them. Oh, there's that. Yeah. Oh, that's right. I just want to point that out. (laughs) Okay, good point. So we will continue to keep our eyes on that uh, remarkable story. I know there's a lot of people out there uh, expressing a a bit of schadenfreude, frankly, at at all of this. And it is horrible, uh, you know, to to those people who are having to deal with this. But uh, but you can't avoid the irony. I mean, it is remarkable of all the places to have this kind of a fire. It is hard uh, to not see that. Not just the irony, but the science. This is coming for everybody. All right. uh, Moving down to North Carolina, the Republicans who completed their legislative takeover of the great state of North Carolina back in 2012 uh, for the first time since Reconstruction, they have been unapologetically continuing their regressive push to turn the clock back on what had otherwise been some fairly progressive and forward-looking policies in North Carolina, at least for a uh, an essentially southern state, until all of this happened over the past few years. We have spoken quite a bit on this program about uh, uh, North Carolina's mother-of-all-voter-suppression laws, uh, which is still being challenged in both state and federal courts. Uh, We've spoken about the dangerous, dirty energy policies of of Republican Governor Pat McCrory up there, who before becoming uh, governor of the state had formerly served as the CEO of Duke Energy, one of the nation's largest coal-loving utility companies. Uh, And over the past few weeks, of course, we've been talking about the state's new anti-LGBT law. HB2, which bars anti-discrimination policies by cities and towns in North Carolina and requires that transgender residents use bathrooms that reflect the identity specified on their birth certificate. Uh, Proponents of the law claim that it is needed to keep sex offenders, apparently, from dressing up as a woman or something, to go into a ladies' room to assault young girls or something like that. Uh, which is kind of ridiculous. I don't know why you'd have to dress up as a woman to walk into the ladies' room if you wanted to assault someone. But uh, that is the concern that they are pretending they are dealing with, even though, speaking on Fox News over the weekend, Governor McCrory admitted there is no known case of that actually ever happening in North Carolina. Kind of like there is no known case of a voter ever trying to impersonate another voter at the polling place in North Carolina, but that didn't keep the state from passing its photo ID voter bill, despite the fact that more than 200,000 legally registered, disproportionately Democratic-leaning minority and uh, student voters don't have the type of ID now required by the state to simply cast a vote. In any event, after all uh, uh, after all the major businesses like PayPal and Deutsche Bank and uh, uh, the artists like Bruce Springsteen and, and a whole bunch of others, Cirque du Soleil, uh, have said that they would not... Uh, uh, you know, participate. The businesses said they would not expand new jobs in the state uh, and uh, artists would not perform there. 
companies and, and states are canceling conventions to North Carolina. Uh, McCrory and the Republicans have stuck to their guns. Late last week, however, stuff got real in the Tar Heel state as the U.S. Department of Justice notified them that HB2 was in violation of the U.S. Civil Rights Act and... If they enforced HB2, they would be putting at risk more than $2 billion in federal education funding that they currently receive from the federal government, from the U.S. government. Yes, you're welcome, North Carolina Republicans. We give you that money. But maybe not for long. The DOJ gave North Carolina until this Monday to respond to the letter that they were sent last week, and the response to that letter came today in the form of a lawsuit filed by North Carolina against the federal government. The suit filed in federal court in North Carolina on Monday asks the uh, judge to block uh, the DOJ uh, to keep them uh, from uh, stopping the flow of federal money into the state. It describes HB2 as a, quote, common-sense privacy policy. The DOJ's position uh, is described as baseless and blatant overreach and an attempt to unilaterally rewrite long-established federal civil rights laws in a manner that is wholly inconsistent with the intent of Congress and decades of statutory interpretation by the courts. Well, the response to that came within the past hour, as Attorney General Loretta Lynch announced that rather than giving North Carolina additional time to respond to their letter from last week, DOJ is instead going to move ahead with a lawsuit against the state for civil rights violations that are inherent in HB2. The legislature and the governor placed North Carolina in direct opposition to federal laws prohibiting discrimination on the basis of sex and gender identity. More to the point, they created state-sponsored discrimination against transgender individuals who simply seek to engage in the most private of functions in a place of safety and security, a right taken for granted by most of us. Last week, our Civil Rights Division notified state officials in North Carolina that House Bill 2 violates federal civil rights laws. We asked that they certify by the end of the day today that they would not comply with or implement House Bill 2's restriction on restroom access. An extension was requested by North Carolina and was under active consideration. But instead of replying to our offer or providing a certification, this morning the state of North Carolina and its governor chose to respond by suing the Department of Justice. As a result of their decisions, we are now moving forward. Today, we are filing a federal civil rights lawsuit against the state of North Carolina, Governor Pat McCrory, the North Carolina Department of Public Safety, and the University of North Carolina. We are seeking a court order declaring HB2's restroom restriction impermissibly discriminatory, as well as a statewide bar on its enforcement. But this action is about a great deal more than bathrooms. This is about the dignity and the respect that we accord our fellow citizens and the laws that we as a people and as a country have enacted to protect them, indeed to protect all of us. That was Attorney General Loretta Lynch announcing the uh, U.S. Department of Justice's lawsuit against the state of North Carolina just uh, within the past hour or so. This law is already affecting uh, North Carolinians. Uh, there was a, um, 
Where are we here? AP did a story over the weekend about a slew of uh, transgender North Carolinians uh, who are trying to figure out how to deal with this. A veteran who spent seven and a half years defending everyone's freedom uh, says uh, she just 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 to come home and have my own freedoms revoked, according to Veronica O'Kelly, a transgender woman living in Durham. The infantry soldier served three tours in Afghanistan, one in Iraq before leaving the army in 2015. Now she's trying to decide whether to follow through on plans to attend the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, Hill where she wouldn't be allowed to use uh, a woman's uh, restrooms to finish her, her bachelor's degree. Uh, they give uh, story after story here, AP does, about, uh, you know, just how the effect that this is already having on North Carolinians. Uh, A.G. Loretta Lynch said during her press conference uh, to the transgender community that, uh, yeah, we got your back. You have been told that this law protects vulnerable populations from harm, but that is just not the case. Instead, what this law does is inflict further indignity on a population that has already suffered far more than its fair share. This law provides no benefit to society, and all it does is harm innocent Americans. Now let me also speak directly to the transgender community itself. No matter how isolated, no matter how afraid, and no matter how alone you may feel today, know this, that the Department of Justice and indeed the entire Obama administration want you to know that we see you, we stand with you, and we will do everything we can to protect you going forward. And please know that history is on your side. History is on your side. Attorney General Loretta Lynch uh, today. Joining us now to discuss this entire fine mess is Chris Scrow. He's the executive director of Equality NC, a statewide organization working to secure equal rights and justice for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender North Carolinians. In 2016, Scrow was appointed by Democrats in Guilford County to the North Carolina State House of Representatives to fill the seat left vacant by the death of Ralph C. Johnson. He has been executive director of Equality NC since 2013. Chris, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thank you for having me. Uh, just so I'm clear, by the way, are you both now both a state representative and uh, the director of Equality NC? I am. We are an all-volunteer legislator, uh, so that's my day job. I got you. Okay. And were yeah. you were you in the House for the passage of House Bill 2 uh, a few months ago? I was not. I, I was appointed by the Guilford County Democratic Party uh, largely because we did not have an out LGBT representative when House Bill 2 was passed, mm. and that seemed crucial to the Guilford County Democratic Party uh, when we came back into the short session to debate uh, its potential repeal. And it was a, uh, a, well, there was a short session, an emergency session that uh, Governor McCrory called uh, to pass this bill uh, in a matter of hours and to sign it. So, uh, all right, let's, what did uh, Attorney General Loretta Lynch announce today just uh, within the past hour, Chris? So I, I am just catching up on mm -hmm. LG Lynch's uh, statement because we just got done a press conference where we highlighted the deep harms to our education system here. Mm -hmm. But I did see that she's going to be uh, filing suit against the state of North Carolina to make sure that they're in compliance with the Civil Rights Act. And earlier today, as you saw, Governor McCrory and separately legislative leaders filed frivolous lawsuits that are uh, going to be ruled against in order to stall the necessity of complying with the Civil Rights Act. 
So these uh, frivolous lawsuits, uh, these are the ones where they're where they're claiming that the Department of Justice is somehow coming down on them, somehow changing the law to uh, to keep this uh, well to kill this law in North Carolina. Yeah, the governor and uh, legislative leadership are continuing their pattern of pointing the fingers at, at everybody. It's, it's intermittently the city of Charlotte's fault, it's PayPal's fault, it's Bruce Springsteen's fault, it's the administration's fault. This is Pat McCrory and legislative leadership's fault that they passed and signed a terrible uh, anti-LGBT, anti-worker, anti-education bill that we know is in violation of the Civil Rights Act. All the Department of Justice did was reiterate that. So, uh, you know, this is this is in the hands of legislative leadership and Governor McCrory to fix at this point because of the mistake that they made. So they were told uh, late last week by the Department of Justice that, uh, you know, this warning to them that it could cost the state some $2 billion in education funding, some uh, $1.4 billion alone for the University of North Carolina system, uh, and that they had to respond by Monday. Were you surprised that the response came in the form of a lawsuit against the uh, DOJ, or was that something that was expected over the weekend? I was very surprised by the governor's press conference and response today. What would have been the responsible thing to do at this point is to say, North Carolina is a state built on public education. We can't afford to suffer that kind of loss of $4.5 billion of public education funding that DOJ has said we're in danger of losing. Uh, Forget the fact that House Bill 2 is, is outright wrong and discriminatory, even if we're talking about uh, the foundational impact that this will have on North Carolina. It was the governor's job as the chief executive of the ninth largest state in the country to put his politics aside and to call for full repeal of House Bill 2 at this point. And instead, he doubled down and continued to play politics with our economy and our education system. And that's just wrong. And in a way that play politics in a way that would seem to be uh, contrary to what uh, conserv- supposedly conservative, supposedly pro-business Republicans would stand for. Uh, I saw an estimate, I think it came from your group, uh, that the law has already cost North Carolina some $500 million in lost business. Is, is that true? And is this an indication now that despite that, despite the damage, financial damage, this is going to do to the state of North Carolina that these Republicans are willing to go to the mattresses to defend this discriminatory law. That's what it would appear. Uh, that's right. You know, we've suffered a half billion dollars in economic revenue loss already, uh, and we've only been in this for 50 days. These are th- this is not pro-business conservatism. This bill wasn't about uh, en- en- uh, enabling local government. They went in and they they were the big government who stripped local rights. And they are the anti-business party right now. Mm -hmm. If they really want to be pro-business, pro-growth, they're going to act as quickly as possible to overturn House Bill 2. That's the only answer at this point. Uh, And over 200 businesses have spoken out in favor of repeal already. Uh, Chris, uh, Chris Grove, the executive director of Equality NC. Uh, why now? We've talked about this on this show uh, for the past few weeks, uh, but I wanted to get your take on this. Why now? Where is all of this legislation coming from? Not just in North Carolina, but in some other states as well. What is this all about? As you see, it's it? all about it, it's all about the fact that uh, some social conservatives, certainly not a majority of people are looking for the next way to fight equality for LGBT people. 
And unfortunately, the way that they're doing that is to attack municipal rights to pass uh, non-discrimination ordinances like the one that the city of Charlotte had, like the one that Orlando, Florida has, and like ones that exist in 100-plus other cities across the country without incidents except to protect LGBT people from discrimination. There are lots of red herring arguments that conservatives are using about why it is that they are pushing for these kind of laws. Mm -hmm. It's really an invented political trick after marriage equality has been won in order to fight the fair progression of equality for LGBT people. Uh, you know, haters got to hate, I guess, is what it comes down to. What, what, what kind of effect is this going to have at the polling place this fall, Chris? Uh, the GOP must have, uh, well, they must have been taking this into account when they passed this bill at the time. And I'm wondering if, you know, this is a call to arms for Republicans akin to, uh, you'll recall, the, same, the anti-same-sex marriage ballot initiatives that popped up all over the country back in 2004 mm-hmm. and brought out right-wingers to the polls. Is, is that the hope, or are these people just not thinking it through? Or is this going to cost them at the polls this November? It, this is a gross miscalculation to the extent that it's a political one. This is not 2004. North Carolina is a fair-minded place. Uh, they have cost the state hundreds of millions of dollars in economic interest, and now are potentially going to cost us billions of dollars in education funding. All public polling that we've seen points towards the fact that a majority of North Carolinians support the full repeal of House Bill 2. So it could have been that uh, social conservatives thought that it was going to be a winning issue for them to uh, gin up fear and hatred across the state. But North Carolinians are having none of that. And if anything, come November, this is going to negatively impact Governor McCrory and Phil Berger's majority in the Senate and Speaker Tim Moore's majority in the House. Because uh, Pat McCrory is indeed on the ballot this November, uh, running against the attorney, the Democratic attorney general out there, Roy Cooper, who has said he will not defend this law. Uh, w- will you be running for a, a full term this November, Chris Crow? I will not. Uh, it's a unique set of uh, circumstances where I was appointed to a seat uh, and, and actually, unfortunately, Representative Johnson's primary opponent uh, beat him on primary night. Uh, so I am really here to, of course, represent all Greensboro residents uh, in a fair way, but to really focus on the repeal of House Bill 2, it gives me a unique perspective to make sure that I'm here to do the right thing for the LGBT community and to do the right thing for the city of Greensboro. But people who are on the ballot, like Governor McCrory, are going to, are going to suffer if they can't stand up for all North Carolinians and stand up for our economic interests. Uh, before I let you go, I know it's a very busy day for you out there, Chris. Uh, is there some belief or concern that the anti-voting laws that North Carolina has now put into effect, uh, really the most suppressive and regressive in this nation since Jim Crow, is there some concern that those laws can somehow counter any blowback at the polls against McCrory and the rest of the state Republicans this November? You know, we do, as you've said, have some incredibly regressive laws around voter registration and voter ID that are out of lockstep with, uh, you know, true democracy and and the values of of the state of North Carolina. Those are problems. I know that people are going to come out in force like they never have before, though, to make sure that they overcome problems. And partner organizations are working to make sure that everybody who wants to vote is able to get registered to vote and knows where to vote 
come November 8th so that they can stand up for pro-equality candidates. Do, do you, uh, I, I know I said last question, but I got one more. McCrory apparently in his uh, comments today said that it was Democrats that are changing the rules for how the Civil Rights Act is applied. What is the uh, Equality NC's response to uh, McCrory, McCrory's claim on that? Yeah, as I said earlier, Governor McCrory has been quick to point fingers wherever he can point them, at the city of Charlotte, at the Department of Justice, at the president, at individual businesses that have come out and said repeal this. Uh, That's not carrying any weight. Uh, The Civil Rights Act very clearly applies to, yes, transgender people's ability to use the restroom that matches their correct gender. That's That's not something that should be a revolutionary concept, and that's what the federal government has said. I'm sorry that Governor McCrory is not on board with progress or business growth, uh, but his excuses are just are just not going to play well in this state. Chris Crow, executive director of Equality NC, and I should say uh, representative Chris Crow, at least for now. Uh, Chris, really appreciate your uh, joining us here today and your fight out there. I hope we'll uh, talk to you again more in the future because I suspect this may go on for a while. I think so, too, and thanks again for having me. You bet. Chris Crow, check okay. check out uh, their work at equalitync.org. All right, a quick break, and we're back with more Bradcast right after this. A uh, lot ahead here. It was a shock poll, and uh, maybe, if I can get to it, the dumbest story of the day. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is your Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year round, like no other media outlet in the nation. But we need your support to keep doing so, now more than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate to make a monthly pledge of any amount you like to help keep us going, or even just a one-time-only contribution. While everyone else covers the horse race, we also keep our eyes on the track conditions those horses are running on. Because voting systems, access to the polls, and citizen oversight of election results can make all the difference. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy. By taking about 60 seconds right now to stop by bradblog.com donate today. And thanks. Shaking it off right here on the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Just an amazing, an amazing story going on up there in uh, in North Carolina. And the fact that the Republicans are still willing to to stand by this, uh, to keep fighting for this rather than say, yeah, you know what? We made a mistake. We'll change it. I mean, even Mike Pence in uh, in Indiana when they passed a similar law a few months ago. Uh, to the one just passed in North Carolina, they at least made some changes to the law after they started getting blowback from all over the country, from businesses and so forth all over the country. Uh, not uh, not North Carolina, though. They're going to stay with it. They're going to stay with it despite uh, Peyton McGarry enrolled at uh, UNC Greensboro. He joined 
campus bands and a music-oriented fraternity. He was in his sophomore year working toward business and accounting degrees. When uh, the uh, HB2 law passed in March, McGarry, who wants to finish at UNC Greensboro and go to law school, said he has complied with the provision that bars him from using multi-stall men's restrooms on campus, even though he previously used them without problem. He has had to leave campus in the middle of class because some buildings have no single-user restrooms. And yet you've got uh, Governor McCrory going on uh, Fox News over the weekend saying, oh, nothing has changed here. Everything is the same. Anything that's changed, oh, it's the, it's the liberal Democrats who have somehow changed the law. Just amazing. Uh, all right, well, <laughs> shaking that off, uh, a, a shock poll, according to The Hill, a new landmark Rosetta Stone poll has found that Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are in a statistical tie in the state of Georgia, a state wow. that has been a Republican stronghold in presidential elections for decades. That poll, um, first reported by WSB-TV, shows Trump with a slight edge over Clinton, leading 42.3 to 41.4 percent. Well, uh, about 15 and a half are undecided. So that is within. So he still has barely has a lead, but that is within the statistical margin of error of this poll. About 14 percent of Republican voters say they are undecided, while just 8.7 percent of Democrats say the same in this poll in Georgia, where Republican candidates have won the state the past five presidential elections in a row in the state of Georgia. Now, I suspect we're going to see a lot of polls like that coming out over the next uh, few days, weeks, months as uh, Trump moves forward towards his uh, towards his nomination in July. And then beyond that, where we're going to see states that were used to be uh, reliably Republican, we're going to see polls that uh, show that, oh, they could go for the Democratic candidate, whether it's Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders. Um but, you know, a couple of reminders, uh, because I've been talking over the past week or so, at least, about uh, be careful what you wish for when it comes to Donald Trump and uh, gleeful Democrats who are getting just a bit too happy, just a bit too comfortable about the whole thing. Uh, one of the things to remember is that in the state of Georgia now, uh, in Georgia and uh, the state of Maryland, they were the first states in the country to go to 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting systems across the in both of the entire states. Maryland has finally moved back to paper ballots for the first time. What was it a couple of weeks ago when they had the Maryland uh, presidential primary? They used paper ballots across the entire state and the world did not end. But down in Georgia, they're still using these same 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting systems made by a company named Diebold about which if you have any questions uh, when the results come in, there is absolutely no way to do anything about it. Whatever those touchscreen systems say are the results will be the results. There is no going back and questioning and counting those, uh, the paper ballots or the paper trails that come off those machines. No, there are no such paper ballots. There are no such paper trails. Uh, and so that's Georgia. That's Georgia, which could go Democratic. But if it doesn't, who knows? If it does, who knows, by the way, if Republicans are concerned that uh, 
you know, the, the machines were gamed or they simply failed in some fashion in Georgia and the, the election went to the Democrat instead of the Republican. Well, there's nothing those Republicans can do about it either. So keep these things in mind when you get so excited uh, about Donald Trump, Democrats. Also keep in mind, last week we had on this uh, on this program State Senator Bob Onder from Missouri talking about uh, his bill. Uh, happily, he's a Republican, and yet he's uh, got this bill moving forward, hopefully in the state of Missouri, that would ban, essentially, ban touchscreen, these 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting systems across the state of Missouri. That bill is, frankly, long overdue. Other states have finally moved away from those systems. But uh, in uh, St. Louis County, the most populous county in uh, in the state, they still use those touchscreen uh, systems. They still use them in the city of St. Louis. Anyway, we had on uh, uh, Senator Onder to talk about his bill. I'm happy to uh, help him uh, move that thing forward. And we brought up at the same point, uh, at the same time, the fact that uh, Republicans in the state of Missouri have long been pushing these photo ID voting restriction bills. And on that, no, I cannot join the uh, I cannot join the senator. And when I asked him why he would want to do that, he he said, well, you know, as it turns out, Democrats and voting rights advocates have said that, uh, uh, you know, the these uh, photo ID laws, um, just like the ones, by the way, they've got in uh, North Carolina now and in Texas and in Wisconsin and in Georgia. That were all passed by Republicans. Uh, that, in fact, uh, voting went up, turnout went up after they passed those laws in those various states. He had uh, the senator had mentioned and I told him, yeah, I know where you're getting those facts. It comes from a guy, a right wing voter fraud fraudster by the name of Hans von Spakovsky, who has long cited uh, states like Georgia, where, yes, in 2008, African-American turnout did go up. It went through the roof, in fact, even though they had passed that photo ID restriction law. Now, hmm, can I th did something happen in 2008 that might have led to African-American uh, voter turnout going up in 2008? What could what happened? I can't remember. It was so long ago now, I think. There might have been a very popular African-American at the top of that's what it was. That's right. Barack Obama was running for president. And yes, African-American turnout went up everywhere. But as it turns up, it did not go up as much in states uh, like Georgia, which had this uh, strict photo ID law in place. This was brought up uh, on Fox News uh, late last week. I think it was uh, Fox's Shannon Bream cited um, Texas Governor Greg Abbott making this same claim. This is what all the Republicans do, this this assertion that there was an increase in, quote, minority vote participation in states with strict voter ID law, and that that proves that those laws are not discriminatory or disenfranchising. The New York Times uh, has called Greg Abbott's statement, quote, misleading, According to Zoltan Hajnal, the author of a University of California, San Diego study on voter ID laws and minority turnout, Hajnal says, uh, quote, the relevant question is how minority turnout in states with photo ID law compares with uh, with that in states without such laws. And uh, he said that his study found that typically uh, strict voter ID laws uh, double or triple the gap in a turnout between whites and non-whites. 
Of course, that's science. Of course, that's uh, studies. Of course, that's statistics and numbers and math. And I know Republicans have no interest in that. Yet over in the uh, Missouri, we've got some news now coming out of that Missouri Senate uh, where they have been trying to get this law passed for uh, 10 years now, a decade. And back in 2006, they were able to successfully pass it. And what they found in uh, in the uh, at the Missouri Supreme Court at the time was that the law was unconstitutional, according to the Missouri state constitution. So what they've been trying to do ever since is get a ballot initiative on the uh, on the ballot to change the Missouri state constitution. They've been trying again this year. The Republicans have been. And now some Senate Democrats uh, have finally found a compromise that they feel comfortable with. I'm not quite as comfortable as uh, some of these uh, Democrats are in the state of Missouri, uh, but they uh, they feel okay with this compromise, apparently, under a version of this legislation that has uh, now been adopted uh, between Democrats and Republican lawmakers. If voters don't present a photo ID when they go to vote at the polling place, they have to sign a statement under penalty of perjury attesting that they are who they say they are, and the voter would still have to present some form of ID, such as a university-issued uh, student ID card or a utility bill, basically what the law is currently in the state of Missouri. You already have to present some form of an ID, a reasonable form, you know, like a utility bill or a university ID. Um, but now you'll have to uh, add uh, another step. You'll have to sign an affidavit, a statement under penalty of perjury that you are who you say you are. And this bill would um, include provisions for the state to pay for free IDs for voters, presuming those voters can get the paperwork that they would need, such as a birth certificate or a passport, in order to get that so-called free ID. So Republicans... Small government Republicans are now spending more money on a bill that is unnecessary uh, to get these photo IDs to folks to stop a non-existent problem at the polling place, resulting in a law that is pretty much the same as the one that they had, although it will add additional confusion at the polling place this November. What's not to like? What's not to like? That's your uh, small government Republicans at work. And now, as of uh, today, this is the Missouri legislature has now passed this requirement for voters to show photo identification. But they don't really have to. They can just sign this thing, yada, yada. The uh, the House voted um, 112 to 38 to send the legislation to Democratic Governor Jay Nixon. So uh, they have agreed, Republicans and Democrats, at least enough of them to get this thing passed. Um, <laughs> we'll see if uh, if Nixon signs the law. He actually, uh, uh, as, as I mentioned, the Missouri Supreme Court struck down a, a similar requirement in 2006 that didn't have this extra caveat. Uh, and Nixon vetoed another proposal uh, back in 2011. But now that they have come to this agreement, will the governor sign it. We will find out. Um, so uh, th it's that kind of thing. 
that I believe are, is not taken into account when we see these various polls that are going in the direction of Democrats when it comes to November. They are not taking into account those unverifiable voting systems down there in the state of Georgia where the poll uh, you know, looks surprisingly favorable for Hillary Clinton or in Missouri where I suspect we'll see similar, uh, maybe we'll see similar uh, uh, polls in the near future. It doesn't take into account these voter suppression efforts, these photo ID bills. So be careful. Be careful, Democrats. Van Jones was talking about exactly that on CNN, I think, over the weekend. Uh, he's quite concerned that Democrats are getting far, far too gleeful about the idea of Donald Trump as the Republican nominee for president of the United States. I think Democrats are taking him way too lightly. Huh. I just don't think Democrats understand that there is a wave building for change and change of any kind, of any stripe. Yeah. At this point, I think, you know, Kermit the Frog could, ru could, I mean, could run. And in fact, in fact, you've said that you think Donald Trump, quote, will probably win the presidency. So what should Democrats, if you think they're not taking him seriously, I mean, what's the prescription? What should they be doing, you think? Well, well, a couple things. First of all, um, the hammer blow will fall the hardest from Trump in the Rust Belt where uh, Democrats have tended to be able to take things for granted. Michigan, Pennsylvania, even Wisconsin, uh, places that have had Republican governors either now or in the recent past. Um, they have a lot of economic pain. Um, they, uh, the winners in globalization are people like many of the folks watching this show. Uh, we get a chance to go to Walmart. We don't pay very much. We don't even think about it. So the winners are diffuse and ungrateful. But the losers in globalization who lost the jobs because of NAFTA are concentrated and they're angry and they're in the Rust Belt. If Donald Trump goes there, he can pick up votes. Democrats need to be in the Rust Belt right now trying to shore up African-American and working class white votes pointing out that, for instance, if you have a CEO president mm -hmm. like Trump, you get like a CEO governor like you got in Michigan that gave you Flint. But if you don't make those arguments and you just lay back and think demographics are going to save you and gaps are going to save you, you will be washed out to sea mm. like all the Republicans have been so far. So that was Van Jones warning Democrats of what I've been uh, trying to warn them about uh, in his own way uh, for for a while. Um, some uh, some good news, however, out here in the state of of California uh, and up in Oregon. I tell you what, let's take a quick break. We'll come back. I will come back with that good news and the dumbest story of the day. <laughs> a really dumb story. That's straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your broadcast. <laughs> California, I've been blue since I've been away from you. I can't wait till I get going. Even now, I'm starting in a call. California, here I come. Yep. Right back where I started. I from. love Jolson. Welcome Her back to the Bradcast. Yes, the, uh, the primary election is heading towards California. Uh, on June 7th, uh, finally, that primary election will get out here. We'll see if it's still going by the time it, it, uh, it does on the, uh, on the Republican, I'm sorry, on the Democratic side. Uh, but we've got some good news when it comes to uh, the, the voter turnout or at least the voter registration out here in California. It has been increasing dramatically. 
over the past several months. Overall, uh, registration has skyrocketed, according to Capital Weekly, in the in the first few months of 2016. There have been over 850,000 registrations in the months between January 1 and March 31. That is huge, 850,000 new registrations. Now, the uh, growth has generally come right before the uh, presidential, uh, the, the growth in registrations generally in this state comes uh, generally right before the uh, general elections for uh, for president. And then it drops with minor mild recoveries in a four year cycle, according to Paul Mitchell over at Capital Weekly. But they found in their analysis um, that the only time that the California voter file ever actually grew in the 18 months prior to a presidential primary was in 1980 when Ronald Reagan was on the ballot. This year, he says, we are seeing a a doubling of registration growth among Latinos for some reason and a more than 150 percent increase for some young voters and a near tripling for Democratic voters. 850,000 registrations in the months between January, uh, beginning of January and end of March, tw- that's twice as much as was registered during the same period back in 2012. It even exceeds the total new registrations in the months leading up to the uh, to the 2008 primary, which was contested big time out here in California between Hillary Clinton and and Barack Obama. Now that was a uh, that was a February primary, so it came a little bit earlier back in 2008. Um, so much of the uh, registration window at that point was dominated by the uh, by the holidays in the fall and winter. Uh, but this is pretty amazing. Uh, they go on to say that the registration has also been more partisan in nature than in that uh, than in the same period before the 2012 elections. Voters selecting no party preference or some other minor party, even the what's called the American Independent Party out here. Uh, has been reduced to uh, to second rung among new registrants, where in 2012, those uh, other options, those other preferences, held the top spots in the early weeks of registration. So what you got is, in short, a lot of people registering as Democrats, a lot of Latinos, a lot of young people registering as Democrats out here in the state of California. During the primary season, which they right. were saying is is highly unusual. These are huge numbers for a primary season registration stretch. A near tripling for Democrats. I wonder why that might be. If this uh, if this trend was carried forward to 2016, uh, they would see that they would say that there would be uh, more than 1.5 million new voters and it would be the largest growth in registration before a presidential primary in 30 years. So we'll see if that uh, if that changes now that Donald Trump is out of the uh, or no, he's not out. His competitors are out of the race. Uh, we'll see how long Bernie Sanders can manage to stay in the race and if that will have an effect. Uh, but that, to me, is is good news no matter what. A skyrocketing voter registration out here in California and a similar story up in Oregon. Kate Brown, the governor up there, uh, where they have passed now automatic voter registration. We have passed it as well here in California, but it hasn't kicked in yet. Kate Brown says that automatic voter registration has solved uh, the problem of low voter registration in the state. She says that in just five months since passage, 
of the automatic voter registration, Oregon has added themselves 100,000 voters to their rolls. So for some reason, Democrats want more voters, want people to vote. Republicans seem to want less voters and less people to vote. Go figure. Can't imagine why. All right. Uh, Final story. Dumbest story of the day. And this is just so stupid. From AP, uh, the U.S. Military Academy has now launched an inquiry (laughs) into a photo showing 16 black female cadets in uniform with their fists raised, an image that has spurred questions about whether the gesture violates military restrictions on political activity. This happened at West Point. West Point is now looking into whether this photo broke any rules. Spokesman Lieutenant Colonel Christopher Kasker said on Saturday, it's unclear how long the inquiry will take. And it's too soon to say what the consequences it could have for the cadets. They are poised uh, to graduate on May 21. But uh, by campus tradition, the groups uh, of cadets take pictures in traditional dress uniform to echo historical portraits of of their cadets. And indeed, a different picture of the very same women without their uh, fists raised was tweeted out by the chairwoman of the Academy's Board of Visitors, uh, 1980 graduate Brenda uh, Sue Fulton. But the fists up image, which circulated online, led uh, some observers apparently to question whether the women were expressing support for the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, The Army Times first wrote about the photo on Thursday, and then they said that several readers had written in to say they believe the cadets were breaching a Defense Department policy that says, quote, members on active duty should not engage in partisan political activity, with exceptions for voting and and certain other things. Uh, Mary Tobin, a West Point graduate and mentor uh, who knows these students, said they were simply celebrating their forthcoming graduation as a shared accomplishment, like a sports team raising helmets after a win. It was a sign of unity, of unity, said Tobin, who is uh, herself a 2003 graduate. Uh, they weren't trying to imply any allegiance to any movement. And if you look at the photo, Des, did you see this? Yeah, uh, I saw that. It's this is this is so stupid. If you so if you raise stupid. your fist in victory, it's a political statement. If you're black, uh, is what they're saying. Yeah, you're right. Had it been a, a bunch of white students raising white their girls, fist, forget it. It would have been hooray. Hispanic they're graduating. Kids, that's yeah. okay. Uh, the, it's the, presumed to be political speech. AP goes on to say the cadets... By these people, I'm just sorry, but, you know, gosh, I wonder what the race is of the people who wrote in to complain. Who complained, yeah. The cadets, immersed in the insulated and demanding environment of West Point, didn't anticipate how their gesture would be interpreted and the attention that it was drawn, said Tobin. Uh, She's spoken with them about it. Their frame of reference is, right now, we're getting ready to graduate in three weeks. I'm standing here with my sisters. We outlasted a lot of people, black or white, male or female. She said black women cadets, in fact, are rarities at uh, at West Point, where about 70 percent of students are white and about 80 percent are men. Although the percentage of women has been growing in recent uh, starting classes. So uh, that's good news. As if these women, as if it's not hard enough to uh, survive West Point, period, man or woman, black or white, but certainly harder, uh, I would suspect, as a woman. And uh, and now, of course, they've got to make it harder for these black women instead of celebrating 
instead of celebrating. They have to concoct and manufacture this. These jerks who have to uh, complain and uh, West Point, which now has to spend time and money and resources doing an official inquiry to find out what happened. Dumbest story of the day. But now you know. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, to North Carolina State Rep Chris Scro of Equality NC, and, of course, my thanks, as ever, to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of the program today, you can download it at bradblog.com for free in full. You can also do the same thing over at iTunes, where we hope you'll give us a good review. My thanks as well for those who have stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on the air and continue doing what it is that we do, whatever the hell that is. Uh, you can find me and follow me also on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. Please use hashtag Bradcast. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs> <laughs>